In the medical world, doctors often use the recently dead to learn and teach about human anatomy. Back in the 1800s, some doctors needed these bodies so badly they would never question where the corpses came from. Some enterprising young men made it their business to supply these doctors with the corpses they required. Unfortunately, to keep up with the demand, some didn't wait for death to come naturally. This is the tale of Burke and Hare on the 176th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeffrey Kelly, your host and storyteller. So what's going on in your world today? I I hope you're happy to be alive, because I surely am. As far as the weather here in Chicago, last weekend we had snow. Do you believe it's snow this late in the year? But this weekend, and I pulled out the lawnmower for the first time. This is another one of those stories that I've wanted to do for a long time, but I resisted because, well, it's been done many times. You can find quite a few other podcasts that have told the story of Brick and Air. I went through the same thought before I did the story of the Mary Celeste, but eventually um, I think to myself, well, as long as I tell it in my own way, what the hell? Now, if you're familiar with Brick and Hair... It's the story of two murderers, so there will be the talk of death, but it isn't too graphic, so don't worry. A lot of the story comes from the book The History of Brook and Hare and the Resurrectionist's Times by George McGregor. I used other sources as well, but the bulk came from McGregor's book. And because this story took place in the 1800s, there are some sketchy details. I did my best to sort things out and used my best judgment. If you do your own research, which I would suggest you do, you'll find some people use different names and such. This is because some of the names of the people are in question, but for simplicity's sake, I just picked the most common one and stuck with it. And of course, I put as much of the story as I could into 20 minutes. Like usual, it's not the whole story, but I think you'll get the gist of it. So, is your cup filled with hot coffee, and are you ready to hear a story? Great, sit down and I'll tell you the tale of two, or four, or maybe five disturbed minds. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Back in the days when willing patients were scarce and surgery was mostly guesswork, there was a great demand for bodies to practice on. Some people weren't too fussy about where the bodies came from. Give him some pound ten. Body snatching was a thriving business, but the competition was fierce, even for two such enterprising gentlemen as William Burke and William Hare. Look, will you show a little respect for the dead man? Will you get your ass off the coffin? 
We take it for granted these days that doctors and surgeons know how the body works. They know what's below the skin, the bones, organs, muscles, brain, and all the rest. How do they know all this? They went to school and were taught by others who learned the same way from others. But if you go back far enough, someone had to be the first to slice open a body and see what's inside. There had to be investigation and experiments, and this was done, as you probably know, by dissecting the dead. Back in the early 19th century in England, medical and anatomical schools were dependent on freshly dead people to learn and teach. Legally, they were only allowed to use those that were condemned to death for their research. And before 1823, there were plenty of death penalty cases to fill their needs. That changed when the Judgment of Death Act of 1923 was introduced. This act gave judges the power to take cases that required the death penalty, excluding those of treason and murder, and pass a lesser sentence. You see, at the time in England, there were over 200 offenses that carried the death penalty. Before this act, even shoplifting could bring you to the hangman's noose. But this was a problem for medical students. There just wasn't enough bodies to go around. Some unscrupulous types found a way around this by grave robbing, digging up those that had been freshly buried. Those that did grave robbing were called resurrectionists. Now, resurrectionists had been around since the 1700s, but apparently it became more popular after 1823. And the thing is, digging up graves and taking bodies wasn't a crime, since no one actually owns a body. But taking the dead's possessions was a crime, so many resurrectionists would strip the body naked and leave its clothes in the grave as to not break the law. It became a problem for families. They would keep a guard on the graves of their dearly departed. Watchtowers were built in cemeteries. Guards were hired. Some families rented a large stone slab that could be placed over the grave for a short period until the body began to decay past the point of being useful. Some used iron cages to surround the coffin. With the need for dead bodies being high and the availability of them low, a dead body could bring in a good price, especially if it was freshly dead. One could only imagine the great temptation there was for weaker characters to do something wicked. And that brings us to the subject of today's story, that of Burke and Hare. William Burke was born in 1792 in Ireland, one of two sons to middle-class parents. He had a comfortable upbringing. He served in the British Army and was married by 1817. By 1818, he deserted his wife and child after an argument with his father-in-law over land ownership. After marrying a second time to Helen MacDougall, whom he affectionately nicknamed Nellie, he wound up living in Tanner's Close, Edinburgh. He became known locally as an industrious and good-humored man who often entertained his clients by singing and dancing to them while applying his trade. Although raised a Roman Catholic, Burke became a regular worshiper at a Presbyterian religious meeting and was seldom seen without a Bible. William Hare was also from Ireland, but his date of birth is unknown. He was also living in Tanner's Close, Edinburgh. He lived at a house of a couple named Lug and Margaret Lard. When Lug died, Hare may have married Margaret or not, no one is sure, but regardless, they lived as man and wife. 
Historian Brian Bailey, who wrote the book The Year of the Ghoul, The Complete History of Burke and Hare, described Hare as illiterate and uncouth, a lean, quarrelsome, violent, and immoral character with scars from old wounds about his head and brow. Bailey described Margaret, who was also an Irish immigrant, as hard-featured and debauched virago. Eventually, the two couples met and got a reputation for hard-drinking and unruly behavior. Dr. Robert Knox was an anatomist who was a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, where he lectured on anatomy. He undertook dissections twice a day, and his advertising promised a full demonstration on freshly anatomical subjects as part of every course of lectures he delivered. He said that his lessons drew more than 400 pupils. Of course, Dr. Knox had a need for bodies for his lectures, and Burke and Hare came to the rescue. It all began on the 29th of November, 1827. That was when a lodger in Hare's home, Old Donald, died. This man owed Hare $4 of back rent. The rent money was supposed to come from Old Donald's quarterly pension that was due, but now, because of his death, it would likely go to some relative who would be unwilling to pay the debt to Hare. This upset Hare until he came up with an idea. He hatched a plan, and Burke was more than willing to help for a percentage of the profits. The pair snuck into the local parish after hours where the body was resting and replaced the corpse with tanning bark. They hid the body, then, after the burial, took old Donald's corpse to the Edinburgh University. It was Dr. Knox who gave them seven pounds for the corpse. On his way out of the university, allegedly one of Knox's assistants told them that Knox would be glad to see them again if they had another to dispose of. Of the seven pounds, three went to Burke and four went to Hare. The question at this point is, did the pair decide at this time that finding dead bodies was a way to make a living, or did the idea just develop over time? If the case of Joseph, which I will talk about next, came next, then it might have been a slowly developing plan. If the case of Abigail Simpson, who I will get to later, came before Joseph, then it was most likely a plan decided right after Old Donald. I say this because it seems no one is 100% sure of which crime came first. I will go to Joseph because that makes more sense. Joseph was another lodger at Hare's house who became ill, perhaps of an infectious fever, and was dying, or at least it seemed that way. As time went on, Burke and Hare must have got a bit frustrated waiting, hoping he would die. At the time, Burke and Hare must have got a bit frustrated waiting, hoping he would die. And there was also the concern that having a potentially infectious lodger would be bad for business. Eventually, they decided it would be best to help the Grim Reaper along. They started by giving the man a little whiskey. Then Burke lay across his upper torso to restrict movement, while Hare used his hands or a pillow for suffocation. This time, Knox gave the pair $10 for the freshly dead body. Now they were on their way. No need to wait for death to come naturally. After all, 10 pounds was more than most made in a month. The two would look for victims, usually lonely, vulnerable people, who didn't have a family and wouldn't be missed. They would bring them to their home, get them drunk, and then take their life away. The next victim was a woman named Abigail Simpson. When they brought Simpson to Dr. Knox, 
Burke later confessed, Dr. Knox approved of it being so fresh, but he did not ask any questions. More victims followed. From January through October in 1828, they killed three men, 12 women, and one child. The child was lodging with her grandmother, who, as Burke later recalled in his confession, was an old woman and a dumb boy, her grandson. They murdered the grandmother in the bedroom with the usual method while the boy sat by the fire in the kitchen. Then Burke went and picked up the boy, brought him into the bedroom, and he was taken care of. Burke later said that this was the murder that disturbed him the most, as he was haunted by the recollection of the boy's expression. Anne McDougall, one of Helen's relatives, was also one of their victims. But I won't go into each murder. Like I said, there were 16 in all. And as far as the wives' involvement, it's pretty clear that at some point they became aware of what was going on and they helped out when they could. One of the most interesting murders was that of Mary Patterson. Mary was a well-known prostitute in Edinburgh. She was between 18 and 20 years old and was considered quite shapely and beautiful. On a Friday morning, Burke was in a public house drinking rum when Mary and her friend Janet Brown came in and ordered whiskey. They had spent the night in jail for being drunk and disorderly. Burke thought these two would make fine subjects for the medical school. He went up and talked to them, ordering drinks for all. Eventually, he invited them to his brother, Constantine Burke's place. Once there, the two girls, Burke, Constantine, and his wife all sat down for breakfast. Soon after, the girls began feeling a little more relaxed. When Constantine left for work, two bottles of whiskey were produced. Burke and Mary Patterson drank wildly while Janet drank but took it easy. Eventually, Mary passed out in a chair, and then, for some unexplained reason, Burke and Janet went for a walk. This may have been to go back to the public house in an effort to get Janet more drunk. When they returned, she was surely intoxicated, although was still with some knowledge of what she was doing. But to their surprise, Helen McDougall was waiting for them. An argument broke out between Burke and Helen as she thought he was cheating on her. Burke's sister-in-law informed Janet that Helen was Burke's wife. Janet tried to explain that she had no idea that Burke was married. Burke and Helen began throwing dishes at one another, Helen getting hit in the forehead, which began to bleed badly. The sister-in-law quickly ran out of the house, perhaps to get Hare to help. Mary Patterson never woke up through all this commotion. Eventually, Helen McDougall left, and soon after that, so did Janet, but without Mary. Burke did his best to convince Janet to stay, but things had gotten too weird for her. After she left, Hare arrived, and they succeeded in ending Mary Patterson's life. Later, Janet did return, asking about her friend, and she was told that Mary had left with Burke. In fact, she returned twice to ask about her. It was only about four hours after Mary's death that she lay on Knox's dissection table, and Knox should have known that this body was way too fresh to have been dug up from the grave where... Allegedly, that was where Burke and Hare were getting their bodies. And during the dissection, one of Knox's students named Ferguson recognized the young girl. The 16th and last of the murders happened on the 31st of October, 1828. By this time, Burke and his wife moved into the home of their cousin, John Brogan. 
Burke lured a middle-aged Irish woman named Margaret Doherty into the house by claiming that Burke's mother was also a Doherty. At some point, Burke left with the excuse of buying some more whiskey, but actually went out to get hair, leaving Margaret with Helen McDougall. When Burke returned with hair, the party began. This was to the slight annoyance of a family of lodgers that were also in the house, Anne and James Gray and their kids. In fact, the Grays were paid a sum of money to stay at Hare's house that night with the excuse that Dr. E was a relative. However, the Grays returned around 9 p.m. to get some clothes for the kids. They witnessed Burke, Hare, their wives, and Doherty all drunk, singing and dancing. After the Grays left, at some point, Burke and Hare began to argue and fight, but eventually they made up long enough to do the murder. They hid Margaret's body in a pile of straw from the bed. The following morning, Burke went to Hare's house to check on the Grays. He invited them to breakfast, and they agreed. During the meal, Anne Gray asked what happened to the little old woman. Helen McDougall answered that they had problems with her, that she had taken an attitude with Burke, probably due to too much liquor, and they were forced to ask her to leave. After breakfast, Anne began dressing her child and went looking for one of the child's stockings. This, of course, led her to the bed the same bed that hid the body of the little old lady. Burke yelled for her to get out of there. Mrs. Gray thought this was a bit of an odd comment and became a bit suspicious. The little old woman. So later, when both Grays were in the room with no one else around, Anne went to see what Burke was hiding in the straw. First thing she saw was an arm. Uncovering the rest, she saw the old Irish woman who had been brought to the house the night before, dead and naked. James Gray lifted the head by the hair and saw that there was blood in the mouth and ears. Horrified, they quickly began packing their belongings to leave. James left first while Anne was still packing, and he ran into Helen McDougall on the stairs. He asked her about the body, and after a moment of playing the fool, Helen dropped to her knees and began to beg, even offering him five or six shillings to keep quiet. She tried to explain to him that the old woman died after taking too much drink. After that, she attempted to convince him to join their murder gang, which he refused. When Anne Gray joined them, Helen went through the same spiel with her. The three left, and while walking, came across Margaret Hare. The four of them went into the public house to talk things over. Over a few drinks, Margaret and Helen began begging the couple not to say anything, but... Anne and James let it be known they were planning to tell the authorities, which they eventually did. While all this was going on, Burke and Hare, not knowing of the Gray's discovery, were trying to get the body to Dr. Knox. They ended up using an old tea chest. They wrapped the body in a sheet and placed it in the box with straw for packing. They used ropes to seal it up. Later that evening, after talking to the Greys, Sergeant Major John Fisher and a constable named Finley arrived at the home and began searching the place of the murder. They found Doherty's bloodstained clothing hidden under the bed. When they questioned William Burke and Helen McDougall, both stuck to the same story that the old woman was turned away for bad conduct. But the thing is, both their stories varied so much that they were taken down to the station. The next morning, the police visited the premises of Dr. Knox and found the body of Margaret Doherty. The Greys were immediately called to identify the body, which they did. Hare and his wife were arrested. Once the arrest became known, 
Janet Brown came forward and told the tale of her missing friend Mary Patterson. One can only wonder if Janet knew just how close she came to being another victim of Burke and Hare. It was on Christmas Eve, 1828, that the trial began. A huge crowd formed outside, and 300 constables were on duty to prevent disturbance. Strangely, Burke was the only one convicted of murder. The other three were set free. It should be pointed out that one of the problems I believe the prosecutors had was most of the evidence was circumstantial. They had very little solid evidence except for the body of Margaret Dougherty. And although there may have not been enough evidence to convict the others involved, public opinion was something altogether different. There was no question in the mind of most people that all four were guilty. The release of the other three caused a public outrage. It was in the early morning hours, escorted by a sheriff's officer and militia guard, that Hare was taken out of town. He was instructed to make his way towards the English border. After that, there are no reliable sightings of him, and his fate is unknown. There were rumors that he was thrown into a lime quarry by an angry mob and lived out his days as a blind beggar on the streets of London, but many doubt this is true. Margaret Hare, by this time, had a baby, and she was attacked by an angry mob while trying to find passage to Ireland. She was taken to the police station for her own safety. The police probably took pity on her due to the fact she had a baby. They made sure she was taken to a ship that took her to Ireland. Again, after that, no one knows what happened. The day after Helen McDougall was released, she was also attacked by an angry mob. She was taken to the police station for her own protection. She left the police station by sneaking out a back window. After unsuccessfully trying to see Burke, she left town, and after that, no one knows. While Dr. Knox was cleared of all charges, as he claimed he had no idea where the bodies came from, the public in Edinburgh thought otherwise. He ended up resigning from his position at the college, and his career never recovered. Burke was hanged on the morning of the 28th of January, 1829, in front of a crowd possibly as large as 25,000. On the 1st of February, his corpse was publicly dissected by a Professor Monroe in the Anatomy Theater of the university's old college. During the procedure, which lasted two hours, Monroe dipped his quilt pen into Burke's blood and wrote, This is written with the blood of William Burke, who was hanged in Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. Burke's skeleton was given to the Anatomical Museum in Edinburgh Medical School, where, as of 2018, it still remains. His death mask and a book said to be bound by his tanned skin can be seen at the Surgeon's Hall Museum. Edinburgh, 1828. The greatest minds came from all over the world. And so did these guys. But no money to speak of. No plan. You just have to work out what the demand is for, and then supply it. But in every cloud, there's a silver lane. We're flat out broke. What about old Donald's rent money? He's dead. Get rid of the body before it starts to stink up the place more than you two. I beg your pardon. Burke and Hare. What about his uh, posture, sir? Threaten him out. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to The Sad Sack. A little bit before I go. There is a movie called Burke and Hare that came out in 2010 starring Simon Pegg and Andy Serkis as Burke and Hare. It was directed by John Landis. It's based on the story of Burke and Hare, but extremely fictionalized. 
they sort of add a love story to the whole thing. In fact, it begins with the words, something along the lines of, everything in this film is true except the facts or something like that. I haven't seen it in a while, but there is a joke at the beginning letting you know that it's not actually based on the real events. It's a very funny, dark comedy and worth watching, but it's not a history lesson. There's also a 1971 horror film called Burke and Hare or The Horrors of Burke and Hare, but I've never seen it. The pair are also referred to in Robert Louis Stevenson's 1984 short story, The Body Snatcher. In 1945, producer Val Luton and director Robert Weiss adapted The Body Snatcher for a film starring Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. It's a wonderful film with the same theme as Burke and Hare. But enough of my rambling, how about the ending credits? Listen, folks, I'm going to tell you once again that we at the Psycon Network could use your help in keeping these podcasts going. Do you want me to fall to my knees and beg? I will. Be one of the good listeners and support the Psycon Network. You can do this by going to Psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And of course, a sincere and heartfelt thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find so many amazing, great podcasts. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. Those really help. And remember, links to the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Reggie Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost us on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. I'll talk to you in two weeks. Bye bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff Met a girl from Beantown Jeff was always hanging around She drank tea, but that was okay She was the dawn of Jeff's new day Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's will have change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. 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 Co
Thank you.